that you'd speak to us corporately and individually. And Lord, uh, open our hearts to your great love and the one that we serve. Open our minds to help us understand the scriptures, Lord, and to give us ears to hear what maybe you would speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2, uh, Revelation chapter 2. If you're, a, if you're here today as a guest, we welcome you, and uh, thanks for coming. I know this may be a little different, maybe even a little uncomfortable uh, being at the tables, but uh, we're finding that it kind of feels maybe a little bit more like what church could have or should have been like in the first century, and uh, what it maybe should be like today, that instead of looking at the back of somebody's head, you get to interact and engage uh, throughout what we're doing. So that's uh, a lot of the reason why we do this, and we'll talk about it even a little more next week at Town Hall. Now, when people come to the book of Revelation, and especially 2012, you know what's coming in December, the end of the Mayan calendar, and so the world is supposed to end. I don't know if it is. Um, the Bible talks about that there's going to come a time. Actually, I know the world will not end in 2012 because there's some other things that probably need to happen first. But who knows, maybe there could be some cataclysmic things that uh, um, are, are launched because of that. But when people go to the book of Revelation, what often happens is they want to figure out all the all the metaphors, all the pictures. Who's the Antichrist? Who's the beast? What's the seventh horn on the third head represent? And all those things can be kind of important, but the key is, is that you never get bogged down on those things. See, the book of Revelation is really, the word revelation means to reveal. And the whole focus of the book of Revelation is for Jesus Christ to be revealed. See, we see him in the Gospels as the Lamb of God who came to save, to seek and to save people from their sins. That's what he's still doing. But in the end, after chapter 3 of Revelation, as we begin to see the apocalypse, the coming of the end, what we're going to see is this new characterization and revelation of Jesus, which he moves from the Lamb of God who was slain for the world. Now he becomes the Lion of God that becomes and uh, promotes and produces judgment upon the world. So this whole book is, a, is really a character study and revealing of Jesus. Now, Today we're going to look at one of the letters to the seven churches, and some of us maybe are familiar with those letters to the seven churches. They are important. Uh, they have three points of application. They had a local application. The, there were seven cities in Asia Minor, and they were on this Roman postal circuit, and so Jesus Christ gives a revelation to the apostle John. Now, remember John walked with Jesus. Uh, the, the Gospel of John, he wrote and said that the disciple whom Jesus loved he was probably one of the closest to Jesus. He's on this island of Patmos. He's the last living apostle. He's probably in his 90s, very old. Uh, history tells us that he was probably boiled in oil, not to the point of death, but as, as just a part of persecution, and then exiled to the island of Patmos, which is really just kind of a God-forsaken desert. A lot of times, uh, prisoners were sent there. The only thing is, it's really not God forsaken because it's on this little island that Jesus comes and he reveals himself to John again and then he gives a revelation to John 
for these seven local churches. And these letters not only would have gone to the local churches, but they would have been circulated among the churches around there. So they had a local application back in the first century. But they, had a, they also have an ecclesiastical, a church application for today. It's really important to study these. And we will at some point. The reason it's important to study them is to understand what is good and what's difficult about church. Because most of the things that they talk about in these letters are things that we face today. All churches of all time have faced them at some point. But I think more importantly, they do have a personal application. While they are written to the churches, they are written to the church of Jesus Christ. And if you've been here for very long, you understand that we don't see this room. This is just kind of a, 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 a sheep shed, you know. It's kind of a, it's, it's really a gymnasium. And someday it's going to be redeemed and go back to being a gym and, and maybe a youth center when we build a new building. But this isn't the church. This is just where we meet. You, you are the church. The people at your table are literally the church because now it's within you that the Spirit of God indwells. And so wherever you go, you are the church. And that's who Jesus is really talking to in these letters for all time. Now, these churches that he writes to, they've been around for about probably 50 years. So they've had plenty of time for struggles to come and difficulties to happen and things to take place. And all of the problems are beginning to come to the surface. And so Jesus is concerned and he wants to speak and reveal himself to these churches and to say, this is how I want you to live. This is what I want you to do and to be and to become. Now, the church at Ephesus uh, Paul served there. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19. And you'll see that it was probably one of the strongest, most vibrant churches of the New Testament. Remember the book uh, Ephesians. Paul wrote to the, to the church at Ephesus and wrote a great letter to them. And history tells us they were probably one of the strongest churches. Now, Ephesus was in the chief city in the province of Asia. It was a, a major city there. It was called the Vanity Fair of Asia because it influenced, it was at the crossroads of both Asia and Europe. The city literally, it, was, it, it thrived economically, had prosperous trade with the east and the west. It was a place of theater and culture. Probably 200,000 people populated it. So it was a major metropolis at that time. It was important politically because uh, Rome had a, a center of government there. The Roman governor was there and it was often the scene of major trials that took place at that time. It was a religious hub. It was uh, the place where the uh, worship of Artemis and Diana with the temple of the Diana goddess of fertility took place. I don't know if you know much about uh, Diana, the, the goddess of fertility, but it would have been an idle, kind of stout little thing. And it, it was, uh, she was the goddess of fertility. And this, it's kind of an ugly little god thing because it was just filled with all of these breaths all over. And it represented fertility and some debauchery and everything. But the temple itself was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was, it was a beautiful, beautiful temple. The reason I tell you all of that is because Ephesus is, well, it's like San Francisco today. It's like any major city in the United States, Seattle, New York, Los Angeles, culture, resource, finances, people of influence, things happen there. And in the midst of that city was this congregation of Christ followers who in the midst of the paganism and all of the stuff taking place, they would meet to worship God. 
And it started out under Paul and then with his protege and son of the faith, Timothy, and became a thriving New Testament church. But it lost its way. Now, I want to tell you something because I think this is important to hear. A lot of people go, well, you know, when is the church going to have revival? When is the church going to be like the New Testament church? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever thought like that? You kind of just start pointing the finger at it. I mean, listen, the church has a lot of problems. And probably, maybe there's a couple of people here today, you're visiting or you're new, and you're thinking, I'm going to give up on the church because it's just a bunch of junk and you have every right to because the church is not in good shape today. But we can't abandon it. And see, revival will never happen until it happens within us. This old pastor, a guy came up to him after service and the church wasn't doing real well and this young man came up to him and said, Pastor, when are we going to have revival? When is something going to break loose and take place here? And the pastor graciously and lovingly took him to a classroom and went over to the chalkboard, grabbed a piece of chalk and said, Son, would you just come over here and stand? And the guy stood there and he drew a little circle around him. And he stood back and he said, son, when revival happens in that circle, we'll begin to see revival happen in the church. And see, loved ones, really, that's the way it is. See, whatever happens in you, me, us, that's what's going to happen in this church. And that's why God, I believe, has blessed Creekside to the degree that he has. Because there's some wonderful things happening here and within us because of the life of Jesus. I had just a, a, a gentleman come up to me yesterday at our men's breakfast and wonderfully was very complimentary to me and saying how much he loved church on Sunday morning. And, 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 and not to deflect it too much, but to bring him back to this. You know what's really happening in you, friend? And I just kind of pointed to his heart. Jesus is happening in your heart. And while hopefully we're doing some decent things and good things in this service, ultimately what you're feeling is the life of Jesus at work in you. And that's what's producing the change. And see, loved ones, that's what it's all about. That's where it ultimately takes place. And I believe that this letter really brings us back to the truth. So if you would, we're going to look at the church at Ephesus and Chapter 2, verse 1. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 1, Jesus has revealed himself to John, showed him in all of his glory that he's there with him, taps him on his shoulder, speaks to him, lets him know you're not alone, you're not forsaken. I'm here, but I want to communicate something to my church. So he writes to the first church. Now, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. The angel was probably the messenger to the church, the pastor, the teaching pastor that would communicate to the church. And he's saying, okay, pastors, listen up. This is what I want communicated. And he says, the one, speaking of Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hands, he's saying, Jesus is control overseeing, and he holds on to those pastors. He oversees them. And he says he's the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. The lampstands are the churches themselves. It's a picture of the church. And he says this to them. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and you cannot tolerate evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and teachers, but are not. You've found them to be liars. You also possess endurance. You've tolerated many, pa- many things or been patient with many things because of my name and you haven't grown weary. You haven't gotten tired. You haven't given up. 
I want to stop there and just kind of talk a little bit about this whole section before we, we move on. He says here the lampstands. See, the lampstands are the churches themselves. And, it's, and he says, what I want you to be is, he uses this representation of a candle lampstand. Uh, why? Because he's reminding us that we are a light. Wherever we go, we are literally the light. Jesus said in John, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world so that the world may see and by your good deeds may bring glory to the Father. That's our whole call, Lord, uh, people, is to illuminate Jesus, the light of the world, to the world because there's a lot of darkness. And Jesus says, never forget, I have control over this thing called the church. He's the pastor. Our responsibility as leaders, our responsibility as a church is simply to make sure that we stay in tune, keep our heart calibrated to heaven. Notice Jesus goes to church. There's people here today, you may want to just give up on church. I, I, I don't really believe you have that option. Because Jesus, if anybody didn't need church, it was the risen Lord. Yet he says, I go to all the churches every Sunday. And you may say a church is dead, but Jesus is there if there's two or three people gathered. And I just want to challenge you because it's so easy, I think, for some of us to think, well, I don't need church. Well, you need church because ultimately it's part of the process of walking with Jesus. Don't give up on it. Make it better. Anybody can walk away. Anybody can quit. Work to make it better. Now, notice the symbolism there where it says Christ is walking among the, the lampstands, the churches. Uh, this reveals his continual presence. This is a very comforting thing, isn't it? Or very frightening. Imagine today, right now, Jesus is walking in the midst. He says he knows what's going on. He's in control of what's taking place. He's heard our conversations. He's watched our actions and our deeds. Wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever we gather here, he knows. And he knows what's in your heart right now. And, and that can get just a little disheartening or a little scary, doesn't can it? But that's a good thing ultimately. See, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, everything lies naked, exposed to his gaze. And it is so important, loved ones, that the church lives with that true present reality that Jesus is always with us, walking with us. He knows our thoughts, our motives. He hears our words. He watches our actions. He walks down the aisles of this place. But ultimately, we'll see, you would see in uh, chapter 3, verse 20, that he wants entrance into our heart. And through the presence of his spirit, well, he knows what's going on inside of us. Psalm 139 says, Lord, if there's any hurtful way in me, let me know. And so it's not like Jesus is just out here, but he's in here when you come into a relationship with him. Now, just as Jesus sent this church and these other churches mailed 2,000 years ago, I am convinced that this letter is just as relevant today, that Christ's church, his people, you and me, are still the hope of the world. And he wants you and I to reach our optimal potential so that we can continue to be that light that he's called us to be and to become. Now notice the commending affirmations that we read. 
I love how Jesus communicates. It's not always to, easy to do this with people, but he communicates with grace and truth. He first gives them grace and he speaks to them and he commends them and he affirms them for who they are and what they've done. But then he's gonna come back on the other side and he's gonna balance it and he's gonna say, but, but, but this is a problem I have. I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak some truth into your life. And he does the same thing with you and I today. Some of you are gonna get a heavy dose of encouragement and affirmation for what you're doing. Some of us may get a little bit of confrontation and challenge for areas today. But it's all good because ultimately it's Jesus wanting to change us to become more like him. So look what he says to them. He says, first of all, I know your hard work. You're living in a city that's rampant with paganism and immorality. You didn't get into this holy huddle and said, our four and no more, but you lived out the gospel message in the core, in the mainstream, in the intersections of your community. He says, great job. You stepped into the battle. You engaged. And then he says, well, and you persevered in hardship. I don't know about you, but it can, it can be really hard to live purely in an impure world. Singles today, making the right decisions to stay pure and moral before God. Married couples making the decisions to stay together, work it through, not give up. That's tough. Making decisions at work that have ethical intonations to them and nuances. What am I going to do? In our culture, it's tough. You got people around you. You got people over you, kind of coercing you and leading you. But he says, you, you stood up. You made the right call and the right decisions. And then he says you're doctrinally pure. You knew your doctrine. You taught it well. You could smell out false teachers. You recognized them. You cut them off. You didn't get involved in teaching fags and wingnut TV preachers or anything like that. You stuck by the stuff. You focused on the word. That's good. So, so Jesus really gives some wonderful, wonderful commendations. But there's some problems that come about even with all these good things. He comes and he gives a corrective exhortation. Have you ever noticed in life that our greatest strengths also become our greatest weaknesses or liabilities? Well, it's kind of what happened with the church of of Ephesus. See, Paul wrote to them in Ephesians the, the letter of, of Ephesians to them. And this is what he said in Ephesians 1.15. He noted that their love for all of the saints was abounding. But now this is probably 30 years later, and I want you to hear what he says to him now. Pick it up at verse four. He says this. You know, you've done all these great things. Man, you persevered. You didn't grow weary. You stuck by this stuff. But, big but. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. But you have abandoned this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent. And do the works that you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you. I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this. You hate the practices 
of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The practices of the Nicolaitans. There's a couple of things in there um, scholars write about. One of them could be that it was a group of people, a group of leaders that came in, and uh, Nikos has to do with conquering Galatians, has to do with laity. It was the leaders that lorded over the laities, uh, the laity people, and they basically come up with the doctrine that had to do with immorality, that anything goes, you could, uh, you know, you could be immoral because it didn't touch your spirit, just your body. Well, Paul corrected that, obviously, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he said, don't you know, it's not just about your body, but your temple is the Holy Spirit of God. You know, your body, soul, and spirit all belongs to God. Jesus Christ died for your whole being, not just your, your spirit. So that's what has to do with the Nicolaitans in a quick nutshell. But verse 7, he says, Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Why? I will give the victor, the overcomer, the right to eat from the true of life, tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, speaking of heaven. So now this is the church 30 years later. When Paul wrote to them in probably about 62 AD, he commends them for their love. He writes to them now in 96 AD through the revelation of Jesus Christ and what happens. Wow, I've got this against you. You know what happens? It's so easy for the next generation to lose focus on the good things that took place in the first generation. This is a church. They knew what to believe. They knew how to behave. They were known in their community for the great things they were doing. They were shakers and bakers, difference makers. Does that kind of sound familiar? Could, could that sound anything like Creekside today? You know, we got people doing things. We have resources. Things are going good. You know, we, we stick by the word. We've worked through some hard times. Jesus kind of brings them back to this truth. You can do great things, but pretty soon it can be for the wrong reasons. And Jesus says very clearly, I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. Hear me. They, they didn't lose it. Sometimes we say, oh, yeah, you know, Joe, he lost his first love. Just kind of fell away. No, 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 no. You, you don't lose it, loved ones. We drift, we leave it. Over time, day by day, we make decisions that begin to move us away from God's love. It happens in marriages, happens in relationships. Man, it starts hot, passionate, but over time, it begins to wane. It grows ho-hum, same-o, same-o. Little intimacy, very little heart communication where we're talking at deeper levels and we begin to simply go through the motions. In Ephesus, you know what they were doing? The same thing. They were going through the mechanics and the machinery of ministry. But they no longer were motivated by love and the lover of their soul. There was no joy. There was no real infusion with purpose. They were doing life. They were doing good things but it didn't have the residence of the love of God. And I need to tell you something, because we challenge you to be involved in ministry here. We challenge you that if you are a part of this church, at some point, part of your growth and maturity in Jesus will be that you get involved. But don't ever let involvement, don't ever let ministry replace your relationship and your love for Jesus. 
It's like work. It's like anything else. You'll do it. You'll be jacked up for a while. But you know what? At some point, you realize money doesn't solve your problems. A relationship doesn't solve your problem. A profession doesn't solve your problems. There's still an emptiness of heart and soul that's got to be filled by something else, and it's called the person of Jesus Christ. Part of the problem we have in life is is that we begin to see love as a noun and a feeling. I just, I just feel so much love for them. Well, what happens when the feeling goes away? Or what happens when you wake up one morning and it just doesn't feel, feel like love? That's where you come back to the Bible because, see, the Bible almost always uses a verb that when you love, it has to do with doing. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27, this is the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your being, your body, in totality, and then you love others as yourself. They go hand in hand. It isn't just a feeling. When you begin to love, you begin to do. But you've got to be careful that the doing doesn't begin to eclipse or overshadow the actual love itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul gets ready to write. And he, remember, the, remember, that, remember that love, a little chapter we love to quote at weddings? Love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle, love keeps no record of wrong. Before he says that, he says the reason this is so important is because we can make things in the church a badge that we wear. And he says this to the church of Corinth who were so impressed with gifts. He says there's five things that don't ever let these things replace your love. And these are the things that people argue about in church today. He says, I don't care if you can prophesy and preach with incredible power. I don't care if you can speak with the tongues of angels and communicate eloquently and and move in the gifts. I don't care if you've got great faith that can move mountains. I don't really care if you give your goods and service to people. I don't care if you lay your life down for people in service to them. If you, if you don't do it with love, guess what? You're a clanging gong. You're just a noise maker. And see, loved ones, it's so important for us as a church that is committed to good things out there, taking care of people in here, that we never forget that. That we don't just get into the machinery and start doing things because it's, well, that's good stuff to do. But we're doing it because we're motivated by the love of God to love people. You can do a lot of loving. You can, do a, you, you, can, you can do a lot without loving, but you can never love without doing. And that's the key that we want to make sure, Creekside Church, individuals, that love is the foundation of all we do. So what's Christ's challenge to the church then and now? Well, Jesus gives a prescription for that church to follow. And I want to say that, listen, this is not simply a lesson to be heard and learned. Jesus is a Savior to be embraced. See, it's so easy to go, yeah, come on, give me the, you know, some of you just love the academics. You just give me the deep truths. But it's more about understanding the depths of God's love for you so that you can learn to love other people as well. That's why Jesus says, I'm going to give you a few things to do. Number one, I want you to remember. He says there, remember from where you have fallen. This could mean two things. It could mean, recall when you started to grow cold toward me 
And then deal with the causes. What caused you to get sidetracked? Go back and restart. Reconfigure your life on the basis of when you jump the tracks. It's kind of like uh, um, the GPS voice you know in your car. You're going along, you miss a turn, take a wrong road, and what do you hear? Recalculating, recalculating, and I want to go, hush up, honey, I got you the third time, you know? (laughs) Have you ever heard that? I think Blake has one where he's got like different voices. You can use French, Spanish, English, and uh, sometimes you just go, let's let's hear the French gal or something, But, but that's what the Lord wants to do to some of us today. Recalculate, recalculate, you're going the wrong way. But but there's also another meaning that it could have. Where he says, remember the pit from which you were removed. Remember where I brought you out of. Don't most of us in this room have a past? And sometimes all I have to do is, I've told you that I I, I really believe that today, if I would have kept going the track that I was going uh, right out of high school, I'd have probably been an alcoholic by now. And I just got to look back and I go, oh, God, how could I ever forget your love? How could I ever forget what you brought me and pulled me out of? So some of us may need to just reflect back and remember what Jesus has done for you. And then he says to repent. Now, this is a big churchy word, I know. But can I tell you something? Repent means this. It means to change your mind about something, usually because God's talking to you about it, and you change your direction. It literally means change your mind and go 180 degrees. I'm doing this. I'm going here. I'm going this way. God says, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 no. I heard that, Lord, and you turn around and go another direction. Now, hear me, because there's a lot of church people, and you've been in church forever. And you go, oh, yeah, repent, repent, repent. I love what C.S. Lewis said because I think this is where the church does need to live a little more. If God isn't touching and dealing with the small areas of your life, you're probably not dealing with God. Most of us aren't out there immorality, um, whatever big thing you want to lie, you know, put in there, adultery or ripping off banks or whatever the big thing is, you know, you say, oh, boy, I'd never do that. We're probably not doing those things. Can I tell you what it is? It's the heart stuff. This is where, if we're not in a constant sense of repentance, allowing God to speak to our mind, changing it, going a different direction, this is where we get, well, that first love begins to get diminished, dismantled, and move us away from the things of God in our life. I don't like this, can I tell you? I, I honestly don't like this. Because it constantly, constantly challenges us. Me. Now, I, I, I tell you a number of stories about my failures and foibles. And some of you are very nice, and you'll come up to me, Oh, Pastor, it's not that bad. Oh, Pastor, you're too hard on yourself. Can I just tell you something? I appreciate that. But I don't really feel like I'm really hard on myself. I feel like those are things that God speaks to me. Appreciate your support. Just pray for me. But let me just give you just a real recent one in the last two weeks. I had someone communicate to me. They said, you know, I don't feel like you love me. I don't feel like I'm your priority. Wasn't my wife. (laughs) Just get that off the table. But they communicated this to me. 
and they said some kind of hurtful things. I mean, they weren't meaning to be hurtful, but they just listed all of these ways that they didn't feel loved by me. And I mean, it was, and I felt like I got rear-ended and sideswiped at the same time. It came out of the blue. So you know what I did, don't you? I started thinking through how much I had loved this person, all of the things I'd forgiven them for, all of the things I've done for them, how I've helped them, what I've done for them. And I just said, this is what I'm going to do. I'll, I'll meet with this person. And I'll give them a piece of my, I'll, I'll show them. I loved them. I've accepted, I've, forg- I've done it all. You ever done that? And I can't, for, for the last week and a half, it's been weighing on me because it was really hurtful. Not only what was said, but who it come from. So what I did was, is after about a week of trying to process it and work it through, I woke up and doing devotional one day, and God said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to write them a note. And you're going to take responsibility. See, can I tell you, that's what repentance is. It's taking responsibility, and you can, listen, hear me, you cannot repent unless you humble yourself, because you'll be like me, and you'll think you're not wrong. So this was my note, dear so-and-so, I'm greatly hurt by what you said. And I've been thinking about all of the ways that I could defend myself and list out all of the things that I've done to show my love for you. But I know that would be wrong. Because whatever has happened, you don't feel my love. And it's always the responsibility, get this, guys, gals, it's always the responsibility of the lover to respond to the lovee and take responsibility when you don't feel loved. I said, what I'd like to do is I'd like to list out all of the things that I've done for you, but that's not what God's calling me to do. God's telling me right now that I need to do two things. I need to listen to you so that I can hear you so that we can heal because this relationship is more important than anything else. That was my act of repentance. I had to change my mind I had to go another direction than what old Terry wanted to go. And if you've been here for 20 years, you know the value that I put on relationships. And God basically said, you're going to walk that out here. I don't like that. But I do. Because after I got done writing it, send it off, I just go, I feel better. You know why? Because I did right. Now, it took me a week. I wanted to make sure God was really speaking to me, you know? <laughs> but I know he was. But listen, loved ones, hear me. If you want to keep that heart pulled to Jesus Christ, deal with the small things as well as the big things. Don't build up an arsenal of how you are always right. Repentance says, I will humble myself and take responsibility in a healthy way for what's happening or not happening. The next thing he says is this is return. Hear me, return. He says, go back, do the things you did. It's never too late to start doing what is right. 
It's never too late to start loving people around you in the right way. It's never too late to come back to Jesus and begin to love him again. This is all about relationship. See, when our boys were growing up and, you know, they got older, I said to them and made a big family council, there'll be no fish in this home, there'll be no dogs, there'll definitely be no cats. They're messy and ultimately mom and dad end up having to take care of them anyway. Well, guess what? Over time, we had several fish, we had a couple of dogs, we had mice and rats and all of that gross stuff. And you know what's amazing? Is I still have two cats from that time. And they're gone, but I've got both their cats. Well, we didn't become the Riley Zoo overnight. You know, it just kind of, it just happened. But this is what I learned then, and I'm still continuing to learn today. It's all about love. You know the reason why I changed my mind on those things? Because I loved my kids and my wife. And this is what I know. Love has to do with me fulfilling you not you fulfilling me. And all of life begins to get distilled down to make sure that we don't forget that because it is so easy that this life is all about me and it's not. It's about Jesus and what he calls you to do. And the love that Christ has is the same for church. Everything that he did was to fulfill us. In the last days, Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians, and this is what he says. He says that one of the traits of the last day church will be an increasing love for people and an increasing love for God. And I want to be part. I don't know when it's going to end. I don't, it doesn't really matter to me. But I want to make sure that as we prepare and move toward that, that we're a people that's growing and increasing in our love for Jesus and for the people around us. It's so easy to move from loving to judging. And that's the problem with being in a church that teaches the Bible. It's pretty soon, instead of loving, you can begin to judge. Instead of learning to serve, you can expect Instead of moving into a closer relationship with Jesus, it just becomes a religious activity and you become very rigid and unchangeable, unpliable, unflexible. If you don't stay connected and tethered to the lover of your soul, Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, I told you that he was persecuted. Finally, about 96, they think he was probably in year 96 and he was in his 90s. They let him go from the island of Patmos. They carried him around the city on the cart, and this, is, this was his sermon. Little children love God. Little children love one another. Little children love God. Little children love one another. He could barely talk, couldn't walk. That was his message. Why? Well, that's the message that he recorded in John 13 from Jesus himself. Today, where are you? What would Jesus say to the church of Creekside today? What do you think he'd say? I think he'd say, man, you guys are doing, you guys are doing some great deeds. Keep it up. Keep going. Doctrinally, I think you're pretty good. You're pretty square. Pretty down the road probably build it up a little more, spend a little more time there. But overall, you're, you're on. You're not got anything weird going on. 
But what, what would he say to us as individuals? Are we loving Jesus more and more every day? See the focus of your life? Are you loving people around you more and more? Because that will always be the result of loving Jesus. You'll love people more and more. First John 4. But I want to make sure that we're a church that is focused on and daily returning to our first love. Amen? Would you just bow your heads with me for a moment? I want to pray and... Father, I want to be a church that's always hearing your voice. I want to be a pastor that's always hearing you. That we would be a people that as we grow older, the generations wouldn't lose the love that we have established in this place. But we would look around and look back and simply say, love one another. Little children, love one another. Little children, love Jesus. Because, Lord, that's what will always keep our motivations pure, our direction set, and our lives secure. If there's anybody here today that maybe you have never responded to the love of Jesus Christ for your life, I want to bring you back to him, the lover of your soul. And I would simply encourage you to say, Consider his claim upon your life. He loves you. And he is continually and constantly calling people to him. And maybe take, take out that connection slip today and just put on there, I, I want to commit my life to Jesus today. And just put your name and we'll pray for you. Some of you just, you're coming back and you say, you know, I, I need to recommit. I need to change my direction. And I need to recalculate, recalculate and recommit to the lover of my soul. And so maybe you just want to write that on your program this morning, on the connection slip. But do it. Don't wait. I'm going back to the start.